1: So much damage to unravel, out the sand and gravel.
2: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your non-controversial opinion-haver and A People's Theology host, Mesa Menega. In this episode, I talk with Michael Vasquez. Michael is a writer, LGBTQ activist, and queer public theologian. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Good Saint Nathaniel. Good Saint Nathaniel is an indie folk rock band from Kansas City you can get connected with both Michael and Good St. Nathaniel and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology.
1: Brazzle, dazzle, frizzle, frazzle Swinging justice like a gavel Enter turmoil and battle Wish I could time travel Not to Galilee But through my family tree
2: today i have michael vasquez and michael is a a friend i'm i'm calling you a friend michael you don't get get to take that back you're a friend of mine You're a public theologian. You're a seminary student. You are a director or coordinator. I'm not sure exactly what your official title is with Brave Commons, but you are a director of a nonprofit and you do great things in the world. Uh, Just an all around badass. Uh, Michael, you're, you're just the best. But I'm wondering who is Michael Vasquez to Michael Vasquez?
0: wow um someone in desperate need of a nap um especially when you like list <laughs> off of all of the things that i'm doing i'm like Clearly. oh yeah i am tired <laughs> um yeah i think i mean those all those things really nail it um i i don't like to f- completely identify with my work but like that's very much how i identify like i feel that tension mm-hmm. uh, but uh my theological work right is primarily in public or political theology and homiletics um, So there's that. And then I, I work as a community organizer, primarily, um, front lines with, uh, students organizing, uh, for LGBTQ equity, uh, in Christian institutions. So doing the thing.
2: All around badass and, uh, and a wonderful drag queen preacher, might I add.
0: (laughs) Also true. Also true. I've done, (laughs) I've done drag once. Um, as a, an attempt to reclaim uh, the story of primarily women of color uh, and the hidden story of queer people in the Bible, mm, um, mm-hmm. which is just a it's a claim that I'm making that there are, uh, there are some of the main characters that we interact with in the Bible are queer. Um, I don't think it's a far stretch, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's kind of where that that piece of my work has come out of. So great
2: yeah I think you have one of the most fascinating faith journeys. you You found yourself in lots of expressions of Christianity. Tell us about your faith journey. How did you get to where you are right now?
0: Yeah. Um, so I was born into a Catholic family um, that was very much your your stereotypical culturally Catholic family that shows up to church maybe once in a decade. Um, we were so culturally Catholic that we got baptized late. My brother and I, um, I got <laughs> baptized when I was five, which by Catholic standards is way too late. Ooh. Um, luckily, you know, I, luckily it happened by Catholic theological terms. I'm like, no, I guess um, I won't burn in hell forever, possibly. Um, but I grew up in that context, but then my family, my dad's family is from uh, from Puerto Rico. And so every summer growing up, I grew up in this Baptist pentecostal hybrid deep in the countryside uh of puerto rico uh which is v- pretty much the exact opposite of a catholic uh worship experience uh mm-hmm. it's it's much more engaged and energetic and passionate um and the theology is quite literally on the other side and our family had a lot of tension between those th- those two identities between the catholic identity and that uh, very mm-hmm. uh, Contrarian Protestant identity, and so I grew up in that world. So, always very curious spiritually. Like I had a lot of questions. I read a lot of mythology growing up. Um, I was fascinated by the mystery religions of Egypt and Mesopotamia and mm. uh, the Mediterranean, and still very much am. Um, but then in college, I decided during undergrad, I was like, I'll go to a Catholic school because this seems like the right way to like. Really dig deep, and that was like not the most helpful experience for <laughs> Like, I finished my sacraments, and I'm like, I don't get what ha- I, I still don't get what's happening, and like, I feel like there should be like something more. Like, there should be something um, deeper. Um, and which later on in life, I discovered as like the the mystic journey, right? Like, mystics long for a deeper intimacy. They're not satisfied mm. with um, a life of faith. Like, that's insufficient. For a mystic, right? Like it's not that that's insufficient for everyone, but in particular for those individuals who have this kind of bent towards mysticism. There's like, I going to church on Sunday doesn't do it for me. Like I need <laughs> something profound and transcendent and um, undoing. Uh, and this mediocre life of faith doesn't click for me. And so I was on that journey since uh, I was young but I had no, I had no language for that. Like 12 year old Michael was not saying that. Those were right. <laughs> uh, and so it's a long story. how like my activism got me into a lot of trouble and I got expelled from my first uh, undergrad, which we could circle back around to if you want, but um, I end up transferring to a school out in Utah and I get invited to an evangelical ministry. And I'm like, I don't, I did have a ton of framework. I had some exposure to evangelicals, but I'm like, I don't, I'm not sure, right? But I grew up in a military family, which is like synonymous with evangelicalism. So I was like, right. I feel like they're okay people, right? Like, what's, the, like, literally, what's the worst that could happen? Well, a lot, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah, like <laughs> Unbeknownst. So many, who knew? So many terrible things could happen. Um, I joined this ministry, right? Like, as someone who had grown up in a violent home and endured so much chronic ongoing trauma just day after day and felt alone in the world, right? And desiring a deep spiritual connection to the divine. And here are these people that like, we have all of those things. (laughs) We we know Jesus. We're holistic in that way. Right, we we can check all your boxes for you. I'm like, cool, great. This sounds fun. This should be fine. Um, And for five years, I was in deep. Right, because also just I, who I am as a person, right? Like I can't do anything half-assed. So like I just dove all the way in and I nine months later, I was in Kenya on a two-month summer mission, right? Like mm, I was mm-hmm. preaching at sunset under some tree in the desert. It was, like, it was beautiful and also so problematic. But I'm like, this is it. This must be it, right? like, um, And I... I like, I gave up all of my other dreams in life for this, right? Mm. Because I believe truly like this must be what I had been looking for all this time. And so when they asked me in particular, um, when they told me, right, that in order to be a member of this community, I would have to give up this significant part of my identity, the fact that I'm gay, um, that I would have to exchange my queerness in order to receive Jesus. in that moment, uh, it felt like a worthy exchange. It felt like, well, this can't have that much of an impact on me, right? Like, and if, if the claims you're making about Jesus are true, then I will be fine. Um, not true. <laughs> Neither the claims that were made nor, nor the exchange, right? The transaction was not worth what I was given. And so, But I was on staff uh, with this organization for three years after undergrad. Went through a variety of forms of conversion therapy. uh, Convinced how many number of students that uh, this dramatic, intense, missional life uh, that the evangelical church demands we live, uh, or certain strands uh, in particular demand that we live, um, is worth it. That the reason they're on college campuses. Uh, is because God called them to be a missionary to the people in their dorm. Like, this is the language that I'm like, mm-hmm. I had ingested as an undergrad, I'm now repeating. Uh, it was some weird shit. And so for me, there was this critical moment um, that that shifted everything. Uh, I growing up had always been right, like it's these, these two strands of me that's like very spiritually curious and interested. And Baby mystic, right? Mm-hmm. But also like very concerned, right? With what was happening around me on a global scale, um kind of obnoxiously so, right? Like asking my dad as a ten-year-old, I'm like, "So what can we do to save Darfur?" Right? As like you know, buy a Save Darfur T-shirt. My dad's like, "Who are you? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, go, uh, go play outside. Like, leave me alone. Like, okay. Um, like that's that that's how my brain was wired from like an early age, and so very engaged with what was happening around me, um almost almost to the point of having one foot out of one foot outside of evangelicalism at all times, like whether I, I consciously knew that or not. And so when the uprising in Ferguson takes place, when uh when Mike Brown is assassinated um and left in the streets for hours, um and this movement is born, right? I I had a lot of immediate questions and then some more intense questions that developed over time as I watched not only the ministry that I worked for, but other evangelical movements and organizations around the country, around the world, just flat out not respond to this moment Mm -hmm. um, or respond super incredibly, like terribly, right? Like there's just this, it was messy, it was gross, but generally speaking, there was silence, right? Mm -hmm. And around the same time, the organization I was working for, they were pushing a a more intense theological statement on human sexuality. They were demanding that people sign this paper and say, like, I uh, will believe and behave in accordance with this, like, really bad hermeneutic, right? Like, this really poorly formed theology um, that was worse than anything they had put out before. And I found myself, right, like, it was around this time where I said, I'm done, with conversion therapy it's not working uh and i am not going to try dating women cuz that for sure is just not a thing that's happening <laughs> um and so i was sitting with this question of celibacy trying to figure out what does this mean for me um as they're putting out this like vitriolic paper but the real big question for me is there is a new movement um that is demanding justice and I've been given a series of tools from Catholics and Baptists and Pentecostals evangelicals on how to read the Bible. And as just, you know, a critical thinker, like I'm just reading this, and I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is pointing in a particular direction, and we're not doing anything about it. And yet, we are convinced that this conversation about sexuality is the most pressing theological concern of of our time, as black men. And black women are being murdered in our streets. And there's not even a space there for a conversation about like the plight of trans folk, uh, mm. black trans folk specifically. That's not even a co- topic of conversation right. because we know how evangelicals feel. And so I start pushing back harder than I normally do. I'm like, well, I have more questions and I have more demands and they're getting angrier. Mm. Right? they're like, well, we, are, we, don't, we don't ask those questions. Like, we don't talk about that. Like, we, we care about justice. It just looks like this, right? Like, Jesus is concerned about your quiet time. And maybe if everyone did their quiet time, people would stop dying. And like, what is happening? Um, and there, there came a moment where some of my closest friends, uh, I realized they had also been doing this, this work, not only around racial justice, not only around activism and organizing, but around sexuality. And they were coming to similar conclusions that I was coming to, But we were all inside of this evangelical bubble and we're like, who do we talk to about Mm, this, mm -hmm. right? Um, And because all of our friends were other evangelicals because, you know, you don't make friends outside of the movement. Like, you don't make friends outside of evangelicalism, God forbid. Um, And so I have have no conversation partners anymore that are non-evangelical. It's why you can call this a cult. Right. Because you're trapped. Right. Truly trapped. And there's another million reasons why I can explain, like why we, I in particular, but in general, people are trapped in these kind of organizations uh, or churches. But when we finally realized that we were doing similar theological work and having coming to similar conclusions, uh, I realized I'm done. I'm fed up. I can. I think I might be able to make my exit. But how? How do I leave when I'm working eighty hours a week for this organization, making eight hundred dollars a month? Mm. I don't have, I have no, in the last three years, I have not used my, my degree by any means. So I can't claim to be like, you know, I graduated from undergrad, I have a degree in political science, I can go and do the thing like no one's like, well, you've been out of the field for three years, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, cool. So I can't get a job. I have no money. What do where do I go? this really interesting series of events happens and I'm like, well, I guess I'm, I'm out, right? Like at some point it was just like, this is over. Mm. Um, and mainly, most significantly, I started dating this guy in secret. And uh, I was like, well, I think, I'm, I think I'm good now. Like, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Like I just turned in a resignation letter out of the blue. I wrote a blog post about how grateful I was for my time with them. And they just bid me farewell. Um, and a few months later I like aired all their dirty laundry on the internet because what else would a millennial do but to <laughs> <laughs> put it all out on the internet? Um, and and then I moved on, right? Like I had started seminary at a reformed uh school in, in Michigan, which was probably one of the worst decisions of my life, uh right after joining an evangelical cult. Sounds like uh, there
2: was a series of worst decisions, but That's, that's interesting that that was the, that might've been the worst. It might've taken the cake.
0: Right. It's just, it's (laughs) like, I, what's, what's fascinating is that like, I convinced myself, like someone, someone must be good Mm. somewhere Mm.
3: Mm -hmm. and
0: not just like good in quality, but like there, I believed then. And I, I, it's a little bit more tenuous for me now, but I still (laughs) believe now, right? Like there's a lot of hesitation there, but I'm like, I still believe in the inherent goodness of. Creation,
3: and so mm. I'm
0: like somewhere, truly somewhere. There must be something good, someone good, an organization, an institution, a people that is deeply good, and I can find a home there, right? Mm. Uh, and I can end in in the most poetic way uh, to phrase this, but like to end my sojourn, right, of mm. longing for a home where I didn't have that in my um, family of origin. And so there, there must be somewhere, right, um, where I can,
3: I can build a home. Uh, it wasn't
0: the reform tradition. <laughs> in short, like I found myself initially welcome, and then very quickly, like I don't, I don't belong here. Mm. Um, and the real radicalization of Michael Vasquez took place at the Hispanic Summer Program, in, that took place <laughs> in Chicago.
2: Yeah, we talked about this.
0: Yeah, this was the moment, right? Like, this was my—I had had all these thoughts, but no real, again, no real conversation partners. Like, even the the people in seminary that were LGBTQ affirming, there was there was a hard there was a limit to what that meant, right? Like, it was—it's the theology that that all it does is is say, sure, like two men or two women can get married, we're fine with that, and that's all the shift in sexual ethics that takes place. It's the only hurdle that's jumped. In uh, theology of the body, right? Like,
3: that's
0: mm. cool. We'll let you get married now. Like, it, are we asking any other questions, right? Like, are yeah. we going any deeper? Or, so that was the limit. Well, I show up to the Hispanic Summer Program. Uh, this was in 2017. And I, <laughs> there were this, it was the first time I'd ever met uh, or spent in a, that's not true. There was the first time I spent any extended amount of time with. Um, other queer theologians who had been doing the work longer than I had, and who had been in deep, but were in my age group, right? The first time I had met a, a trans theologian, um, let alone like trans Christian folks, right? And I'm like, where am I? Like, where? This is amazing. Like, mm-hmm. who are all of you people, right? And they're talking about all these theologians, and that I had like felt like I'd been reading in secret, right? Like very Harry Potter under the blanket with my, like my wand, like I'm studying magic, right? Um, Which comes later on in life, but um, (laughs) like it does happen. But, um, and the way that people talked about theology, the the way they talked about the divine, the way they thought they talked about what was possible uh, spiritually, um, it just, it blew my mind. And I walked away from that, like, wanting to flip every table I'd ever come into contact <laughs> with prior to that moment. I I can't believe I've been lied to all this time. Mm. I can't believe you've been holding back all of this, all this time. A couple years later, I'm in a place where I'm like, no, I, I am mad that you are also being deprived of this, right? Which, this is going to be a, a different rant that I didn't expect to go on, but there are a lot of people who just don't know that this stuff exists Mm -hmm. Sure, the Mm -hmm. internet is great there's all this wonderful information out there like incredible stuff but no one's looking for it they don't know how to look for it right like there's also a ton of crap on the internet so if i start searching for like you know like liberation theology i might run into something that's like not helpful right like i might Mm. run into something that's not good quality right uh People are afraid, right? Like I have enough, I've developed enough critical empathy to acknowledge that there are people who just are afraid of leaving what is so familiar to them. And that's just human of any of us, right? We're, we're afraid to leave the things that, that we're familiar with, the things that we know, the mm-hmm. things that touch and taste and see that feels right. Um, this feels right to us. Um, so we don't even know how to begin the journey. Right of shifting, and yet we those for those of us who do find the way and figure things out and arrive at certain conclusions, we are angry at everyone else. Right, that has not made it to where we're at. And there's some validity, right? Like there's some validity, like hey, you're you are espousing toxic theology. You have a platform, let's say, that tens of thousands of people are following, and you are saying some stupid stuff, right? Mm. And You don't. Some of you don't don't care that you're saying stupid stuff. Some of you just this. You love this. You 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 feed off of the toxicity of all of this. But there's some people who genuinely are like, I didn't know. I didn't know that there was another option. I didn't know that there was another way. Um, And to not not to get super preachy on your podcast, but I like I think of John the Baptist, right? Like like the whole line of like, let's prepare a way for Jesus. Mm, It's like mm -hmm. prepare a way for the arrival. Some people just truly did not know that there were there was another way, that there was a way of justice. There was a way of overthrowing um, the systems that we're wedded to, right? The the ways of thinking that we're wedded mm-hmm. to. Um, now, if you show someone that there's another way, that there's an alternative path and they choose to remain in the thing that is toxic and damaging and problematic, and then that's a different conversation. Right. Um, but what happened to me at Hispanic Summer Program was that I showed up not knowing as much as a lot of these people and a table was set in true Latinx fashion. Like just a, <laughs> a banquet, a feast, right? The, the kind of thing where it's like, I can, I think of my grandmothers and like, have you eaten enough? and right? Like, I'm like, I've eaten two plates. You keep feeding me. And it's like, no, no, but there, there's more, right? Like there's still more food. I'm bringing yeah. you more. And that's what it felt like. There's like the possibility is a, a theological conversation and ethical conversations and, and, And just possibilities for my own personal life were innumerable um, and people were willing to set a table for me to participate in that instead of just saying, like, you're not woke enough. Mm. You're not, you can't Mm -hmm. sit with the cool kids. So, yeah.
1: Exhausted Feeling like my well is cracked
2: The people you met on that journey at that program was marcella althas reed and we've talked a little bit about her before with one another yeah. i love her you love her who is marcella althas reed and why do you love her theology
0: oh it's just it's so weird and that's mm. my initial response to her right like my <laughs> i was like this is so bananas right like i've both i was refreshing myself earlier i've both Two of her books with me right here, just mm. queer God and Indecent Theology. And it took me forever to realize the, the cover of Indecent Theology is a crucifix and a naked woman. And I'm like, whoa. That like literally it was like months later, I'm like, whoa, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that that she does that I think just shifts like that shifted everything for me was this conversation. Um I'll just I'll read, let's see if I can find, let's read the, she says that indecent theologians may say, and this is a trigger warning for like harsh language against uh, queer folk that she's reclaiming here. So Mm -hmm. just to give that disclaimer, um, indecent theologians may say, God, the faggot, God, the drag queen, God, the lesbian the heterosexual woman who does not accept the constructions of ideal heterosexuality, God, the ambivalent, not easily classified sexually. um, It goes on, right? Like, I'm like, at first, right, I'm like, to say, God, the faggot, like that hurts deep, right? Like, I'm like, mm. like, it, because my immediate thoughts is, is growing up, right? Like right. a 10 year old Michael, 11 year old, 12 year old um, being bullied my brother calling me a faggot. Uh, friends at school calling me a faggot, um, and just like the the trauma of that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, then that's when it registered for me, right? Like God is not just God is not just this like person, this pie in the sky. I, I had a conversation with someone um, earlier this year who who was trying to who was trying to make a theological point of God as our ally. And I was like, that's such a cute way to frame that. <laughs> Except Marcella would say that God is actually, in fact, a faggot. And like, mm. what does that mean, right? That God is so, inti- like, so intimate with the, the darkest parts of my story, that the most hurtful things that I've endured, that God can be found there and not like, you know, the straight person that shows up to the pride parade with their like mm. delta airlines pride t-shirt like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yes god is corporate america that like shows up once a year to say hello yeah but like god is in fact your shadow god is in fact that dark murky thing that is uh, that you've been running from and you can't hide from that god meets you in this place like that that was life-changing mm. and remains life-changing for me mm-hmm
2: you're you're kind of getting into the, my next question, but one of the hopes of Althaus Reed was to queer theology. Uh, I, this seems to also be a hope of yours. What does it mean to you to queer theology?
0: Yeah, I mean, queerness, uh, I think can be best understood as that which interrupts, disrupts, overthrows, combats the status quo. Um, and... Brings in or or claims like makes a claim for a different way of being, right?
3: Mm. Uh,
0: queerness is to say like there there is a possibility or a potentiality to use um, some queer theory language, right? There's potentiality for a different kind of utopian world, and not utopia in the sense of this like trite, cute little thing, but something that was hard fought for and earned, right through the communal participation in interrupting and disrupting the status quo. That just seems like queering theology. Like I love the idea of queering theology, but I feel like theology inherently is already queer. Like Jesus is already queer, Mm -hmm. right? The Mm -hmm. act of um, the act of kenosis of, uh, of the divine emptying itself of divinity in order to take on humanity. That's some queer shit, right? Like that's just, that's (laughs) peak. That's a, that's a, drag queen right like i'm mm. going to i'm going to put away all of this of what you already see and put on a different persona put on a different reality and in the process right like it's not just for show right it's not just for for fun right like in putting on a different reality i'm pointing to something that is actually in fact possible which one small tiny example of that right in the act of a drag queen is to say like i can twist what you expect out of the masculine. I can interweave the masculine, the feminine. I can design for you something that you didn't believe was possible because of what you ascribe based on like how my gender is presented to you, what you assume about my gender and my sexuality. Uh, Queering that says like, no, there's something else that's possible even beneath this. And I'm going to put that on in full display for you. What I was talking about earlier about John the Baptist saying, like, let's prepare the way, right, is because there was not a way there before, but John the Baptist prophetically believed. Like, there is actually a different way of being. So let's prepare the way for this queer God to show up and say, hey, we, it doesn't have to be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something else that's radical, beautiful, odd, different, weird, um, but exciting. That That I think is... Is how we create theology. So over this recovery, how
1: could there still be more? You're dancing with your Jesus. I am crying on the floor. Singing songs, of celebration. Well, I.
2: I have Nate Allen with me, and Nate Allen is the person behind Good Saint Nathaniel. And Nate, I am so intrigued by your sound. It's so unique, so different. You don't quite hear sounds like what you make, especially in terms of your vocal delivery. And it sounds a lot like the Homeless Gospel Choir and Listener. And you were just telling me that uh, you were just playing a show with the Homeless Gospel Choir with Derek, and you... Your, the, your last album was produced by a band member of Listener. So that would explain why you kind of seem to uh, fall within the, the sound category of both Listener and the Homeless Gospel Choir.
4: Yeah, I, I think, um, well, history is I've, I've been kind of in the folk punk world for, I mean, nearly 15 years. So I think some of the, the broken vocal quality of that world um, comes out in homeless gospel choir and also in listener. So mm-hmm. I think that is an element of it. I with this record, I wanted to. I, I focused on the emotion of the song. So if I had to choose between what I would call a a quality vocal take and a broken vocal take that had all the emotion that I could pack into a song, I went with the emotional side. Yeah, of the track, uh which was a conscious uh, and vulnerable choice. Uh, and came out on the album. Mm -hmm.
2: You were telling me too about how you kind of actually recorded, it's like the same album, but in two very different ways. You you had a recording of like a full instrumentation, and then you did like a very stripped down version. What was sort of the impetus behind all of that?
4: I think my goal in my head was to make a stripped down record. Uh, What happened was the creative kind of like, energy took over and we made this kind of fun rock and roll record out of these really sad songs Mm -hmm. and then the last day in the studio or what's supposed to be the last day I was like I want to record an acoustic song and I tracked it and I was flooded with tons of tons of emotion and tons of just like perspective on the songs like just during this one take and I walked back in the studio and I was like john you're gonna you're gonna hate me. I wanna record the whole album stripped down and uh and so we did that, and I recorded you know the the nine songs with no click tracks, nothing at all to get in the way and then that was kind of what ended up being the album, which was not at all what I think we expected mm-hmm. um but it did harken back to the vision that had been in in my heart. And then with the, all the different uh, soundscapes that we added, that was something I did uh, later with friends.
2: Mm-hmm. Obviously, especially with the uniqueness of your vocal delivery and the fact that this album has kind of that stripped down take on it, the lyrics become really incredibly important in your music. Can you tell me a little bit about like what were some of the themes that you were trying to convey lyrically and maybe even like some of the experiences you've had that influenced the direction of the lyrics? The
4: the like life events that were kind of going along the record, there's just, there was a ton of them. Um, Specifically a recovery process from spiritual abuse Mm. is kind of the like main thing I think I was processing in the lyrics. But also just a lot of life change and growth had happened in the last five years since I'd recorded an album, um, and I think to me it's the first time that I'd first time in a long time that I'd stripped away all the different external layers and just let my lyrics kind of tell the story. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the goal.
2: Mm-hmm. In terms of the sound, and again, you mentioned that you had kind of a recording of the full band and then the stripped-down version. Were there any particular sounds that you were trying to convey that maybe connect to some of those themes of like spiritual abuse and some of the other lyrical themes on the album that you were trying to make some sort of connection between the sound and the lyrics?
1: Yeah, I I
4: really wanted kind of a a spacious. Uh, Kind of deserty soundscape behind the record, if that makes mm-hmm. sense? Uh, and I think we actually nailed that really well i I put out a call on Facebook and also reached out to a few friends that like to make noise. It's not necessarily my strength. <laughs> and so I just wanted to collaborate and i'm a I'm a very collaborative person by nature, mm-hmm. and so working with a lot of different friends brought me great joy, especially I just send them a song and say, you know, do whatever you think this needs and then Maybe just kind of give them a little bit of feedback, and then there's a few spots where I got to add some of my own touches, and so really taking more of a production, like putting on the hat of this is my idea. Can you can you flesh it out for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, versus just trying to, you know, tinker my way to to what was in my heart. Mm-hmm.
2: In terms of touring on this, yeah, I, I know that you've played some shows. Is there any? Uh, maybe you already have, but is there any ambition for like a, a full-on, maybe like national tour with this album? And, and again, maybe maybe you've already done that, but anyway,
4: yeah. I'm, I mean, I've done. I just did a tour that was twenty shows in twenty-one days um, mm-hmm. that hit hit significant portions of the country. Um, I'd like to tour on it more. I, I would like to get back to the coasts and spend more time in the South, specifically. Um, mm-hmm. if you happen to listen to this invite me to your church in the deep south i'd love to see what happens uh, <laughs> um but like that that's the idea I, I have no idea what what the um what the next calendar cycle will hold we mm-hmm. have a baby coming in a few months so oh, that's going dictate thank you it's going to dictate the next uh i don't know six months or so
2: yeah um, in terms of other music are, are you in the process of writing maybe you've already even started recording a little bit for like some new music but where are you at with some new music
4: I am always writing so this high no truth was nine songs chosen out of about 200 for the demos um, oh. and there is a lot more <laughs> that was even like a couple weeks ago I was like in the post-tour depression kind of like going through all the, the grief part of the ending and travel. And I was like, okay, well, there's there's four more songs. So I guess it's uh, there, there's more records always tapping, knocking at the door. Mm-hmm. And I haven't started recording, but that's hopefully it will happen next few months.
2: Are you noticing any particular themes that are emerging out of some of the new stuff that you're writing?
4: Uh, I, I mean, I write... I have a couple of different bands. So sometimes I'm writing really silly songs Mm. that like my daughter loves. And sometimes I'm writing really personal songs that like will break my own heart. Mm. Um, So it kind of goes back and forth. I think thematically I'm still in a recovery process, uh, in active therapy and things like that. So some days I'm writing really broken songs and some days I'm a little more
2: optimistic. Mm. That, uh, that dialectic is uh, so prevalent in a lot of really good music. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Nate. I I'm really, uh, I'm really was enjoying the sound. Uh, right Immediately when I heard it, I'm like, God, this sounds a lot like Homeless Gospel Choir and Listener. And it's not like those bands are large by any means. They have kind of a niche audience. Uh, so I was kind of curious if you had any connections there, uh, just because that sound isn't uh just doesn't happen by accident so uh i'm glad to know that you uh know derek from homeless gospel choir and you know the people from listener and that you're deeply connected with those folks because they make wonderful music and uh anybody that they are hanging out with i know uh i can trust the the creative process and the artistry of or the artistry uh Uh, of those folks so uh thank you again for your music and uh and uh, i love the fact that you're connected with some of my favorite bands
4: awesome thanks for having me
2: halfway point in the semester now what have you learned theologically so far this semester and what has this semester taught you about yourself so far
0: Uh, good reflection question for (laughs) my therapist like (laughs) i get annoyed when
2: i i get annoyed when i when i go home uh for like you know like thanksgiving or something and i'm asked like well, what grades did you get? Like, that's, that's the least of my concerns when I'm in seminary right now. Like ask right. me what I've learned this, this semester. So anyway, that, that's why yeah. I, that's a, that's a project projection of my own. Yeah, just... no, I
0: love it. I love it. Um, so I'm taking my first PhD class, uh, this fall and it's theologies of preaching, um, as I, I grow as a homiletician. And I like, I took this, you know, I like, I'm a masochist, I think. Uh, I think that's clear. there was a There was a list of options for the one of our biggest assignments for the semester is to do a presentation on a homiletic and on a homiletician. There were like Oscar Romero is on the list, right? Mm, like mm-hmm. there there are liberation theologians, there are um theologians of color, right? like there's all of these options, and I see. Carl Bart, and I'm like, that's the one. <laughs> We're gonna do this. And my my professor's like, Michael, are you sh- what? Him knowing me very well, I've taken a few classes with him. He's like, Ar- what are you doing? Are you sure? Are you okay? Like, you feeling all right today? <laughs> right. Like, do you wanna talk? And I'm like, no, like, I'm doing Carl Bart. And I also had like the least amount of time to prepare for this than anyone else, right? Because it was the first presentation slot of the semester, it was two weeks in. He's like, are you sure two weeks is enough to write a paper and to prepare a presentation to read all of this Bart? I'm like, try me, watch, watch me. Right. Like the Enneagram eight jumped out of me. Yeah. Um, And I'm like, we're going to do this. And I think what brought me to Bart, um, what made me curious about Bart is one I had somehow managed to never read him up until this point, uh, which is, was a blessing, honestly.
2: Yeah. I'm glad that seminaries are moving that way.
0: Yeah. Like, and (laughs) like, Blessed be. There's a lot of reasons why that's a good move. But I was my my primary motivation was thinking about Bart's context, right? Like, what did Bart have to say? Right. Uh in the face of the rise of extreme nationalism, fascism, the rise of the third of the Third Reich, um, Hitler's ascent to power. What what did he have to offer in the face of that? Like mm. and And because I felt like this is something we've never experienced, right? Like the rise of a despot leader who's wildly nationalist and, you know, isolating entire groups of people, right? Like, this is like, oh, like, I don't know. I wonder what that would be like.
2: Yeah. Sounds like a fun uh, experiment to try out. Right. Like,
0: huh. I I can't relate, but like, I guess I could, you know, lean in. Um, But for exactly all of those reasons, I'm like, in the age of Donald Trump, what would Bart have to say I imagine the same thing he would have had to say in the face of Hitler
3: Mm, mm -hmm.
0: and so I read his homiletic and with that lens right and I felt like Bart was immediately redeemed for me Um, Mm. And I would never recommend Bart's homiletic for designing your homiletic today. Like, I would not say, like, this is great for preaching today. Like, this is useful now. But uh, there's an author whose name I'm spacing on right now who calls his homiletic an emergency homiletic. Uh, it was him responding to the demands of that moment. And
2: mm. in the demands of that
0: moment, he said, your preaching should just be the reading of the word. Like, the word reveals the word like the word reveals jesus that is the role of the preacher to reveal christ it's not about aesthetics it's not about pomp and circumstance it's not about mm. you know putting on a show right which is why preaching for the better half for the better part of the 20th century became bland and boring because everyone loved bart and they were like he said be boring so let's be boring right <laughs> which is not the point of bart's preaching right or, or, or of his homiletic, uh, at the time, there was tons of, you know, kind of the the Jerry Faldwells and the uh, Joel Osteens, right, mm-hmm. uh, of of Germany, right? Like these fanatical, uh, charismatic leaders who were preaching these well-put-together sermons uh, who had mastered rhetoric. And people were like, yes, I love this. And also, all of those sermons were saying, worship Hitler. Mm. So people were like, Obsessed with this. And Bart's response was like, Your sermon should just be bread. It should simply be the bread of life and should focus on your congregation. It is a rebuttal against people that were preaching in support of the state. Um, uh, and I love that. I think Bart is weird. I think he's not helpful. Like, I, I don't agree with most of his theology, but what I do agree with is there are moments and are in the course of human history where we will have to respond to the emergency of the moment. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. And our theologies must be flexible. They must be agile. They must be able uh, to respond to the needs of this particular moment. And if it doesn't
2: fit, right,
0: if the theologies we already have don't fit the rise of fascism, perhaps your theology needs to change Mm -hmm. instead of trying to fit the moment into your theology, which, as we've seen, is incredibly difficult. Thoughts are not your thoughts,
1: nor are my ways your way.
2: How do you see your work being theologically inspiring and liberating? That might be a painfully obvious question, but.
0: Yeah. Um I have come, uh I'm borrowing a friend's words when I when I say this, but I've come to the conclusion that like that the truth, right, is daily liberating. Mm. But it's hard to get to the truth when it's been covered with trash and with uh power plays and just the snobbiness uh, of the academy right Mm. i'm a huge nerd i love i could read for days i could engage in these kind of theological discussions
3: all day long um but if
0: your everyday human being cannot access that conversation if they cannot access what you're saying then it's useless right Mm. um in my eyes, right? Like, sure, have that in your, like, that's your, that's your hobby, cool, great. But when you're preaching, when you're leading, um, when you're producing theology for the world, right, and this is what makes me a public theologian, because I care less about the academy burying itself in its own books, but, um, <laughs> like, people need to be able to access this and then be freed by it. Mm. that's the whole point of the story right not to puff ourselves up and how smart we are or or how fluent we are in in greek i could spit bars to you in greek and hebrew if you wanted but like i don't care right like that's the point the point is that this should be free the message of jesus or whomever ought to be freeing it ought to be liberating and i believe right as i have gone through my ebbs and flows in religious practice and spiritual experience and like I'm just as likely to read my Bible on a Sunday morning as I am to like (laughs) bathe in crystals, right? Uh, Like it's, there is a deep truth to the person of the divine that sets us free to be, as in Howard Thurman's words, like free in a way that does not infringe on your capacity, the other's capacity Mm. to also be free. I don't know if that answers the question, but.
2: That totally answers the question. Right. Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work?
0: Yeah. Um, I can be found being a hot mess on Twitter <laughs> uh, um, at, uh, at MV Sebastian. Uh, but you can find me also at bravecommons.org, where me and my team are, are doing some pretty great work uh, in trying to bring this theology down to organizing work and helping students.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I'll say I the just the uh, the the foolishness that is your Twitter feed, just it's at the expense of it's at the expense of yourself, but it brings (laughs) an entertainment to all of us. So, uh, I mean, if you haven't learned anything from this conversation, just know that uh, follow Michael on Twitter and uh, you will be entertained at the cost of his own dignity.
0: Yeah, (laughs) listen, joy, joy is liberating. It is the best. It's liberating. Just lay your ego down and yeah. let the rest happen.
2: And you might you might see some twerking on some homophobes. Very true. Yeah, that was a an iconic, iconic very on brand moment. Certainly was. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This has just a, been a delightful conversation. Anytime that I'm able to talk with you, talk about Marcela Outhouse Reed and talk about all the, the liberating work that you're doing in the world, uh, I, I come away even more inspired uh, to participate in all of that. So thank you so much for your life and your work. Thanks for having me.
1: I don't want to see the bombs drop anymore I don't want to see the kingdoms fall No, I don't want no wonder I don't want no one to hurt at all. Hypocrisy in me is called indifference.
2: If you would like to connect with both Michael and Good St. Nathaniel and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Menega, And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.
1: No, I don't want no. I